Welcome. So we're back. Uh, Energy Bites episode two. Brad Dad is here. John Calfan. Got my co-host, Bobby Nealon. And today we've also got Todd Bush from Decarbon Fuse, as well as just a man, we've I was trying to think about what year it was that I originally met you, and it's been a while. So yeah, it's been a long time old, for sure. I, I had to old, look back uh, on what but the company I was like, I knew we use we even used the <laughs> energy, mm-hmm. but I had to look back up what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I did too. Because <laughs> I mean we we used it in a number of places, the the API and stuff when Bobby and I were working together and uh then they got bought and I also haven't worked at, at a company <laughs> that needed it. So yeah. but no, we've got Todd Bush. How's it? Thanks for thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for uh the invitation and and definitely excited to talk about, you know, they're always we'll go back and forth on the data and AI side and so interested to hear kind of what you guys are up to as well as uh sharing a little bit about what I'm what I'm doing. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and and tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where are you from, kind of how'd you how'd you end up here today yeah so let's see so um born in colorado grew up mostly in dallas um and uh was interested kind of in uh technology and kind of information all along uh went to texas a&m undergrad focused mostly on information and operations management and did a little bit of statistics uh so that was kind of the kind of piqued my interest a little bit in in that and then out of school, I actually worked for a small software company first, um, just really focused more on the financial and banking side. And then um, met some people and got um, recruited into a consulting firm that was working a lot with Chevron. And so I kind of found an inroad into uh, Chevron and was a kind of like a program project manager, program manager. And one of the first projects there was a uh, company-wide technical portal that included everything from the initial kind of regulatory planning all the way to drilling and production to um, what happens kind of on the workover side afterwards. So that was kind of my first foray into, you know, all the information, kind of all the different workflows that are that are across different teams. And so from there, it's just been um, kind of expanded into yeah. a number of different uh, products and projects. And so good stuff. It's Todd's humble description of a... Uh, yeah. Of a successful software entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's how, that's how we met. Um, I was, it had to be, I think sometime around 13 or 14, 20 to 12, 13, 14 ish mm-hmm. where I don't even, I think it was like a LinkedIn post or something. I came across Interjet and I was working for a frat company and we needed, you know, data about permits and completions yep. and frack focus had just kind of started back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wasn't you know there was no requirements or anything around it back then it was just a a database um but yeah that and you know what you guys ended up selling that to to yeah to westwood Westwood, yeah yeah Yeah. so um started intergent with a friend uh so boyd uh skelton and we basically looked at all of the kind of frack focus completion data and at the time uh the completion data wasn't just wasn't very good and right this is 20 what 2013 right yeah so we had a little uh, we had a little uh, mobile app out there that was for kind of the field guys and we just felt like the oldfield service side was underserved really and um ended up doing a lot of work for fraxan companies logistics companies um financial institutions that were kind of looking at the looking at activity and trying to understand what completion trends were were happening 
And so we ended up going from just the typical regulatory side and bringing in all of that information to um, taking satellite data and trying to figure out, okay, could we actually observe when the rig is on site, when it leaves, what happens when a frat crew is on site, can we detect kind of all that? And we had some pretty good success with that and launched another kind of product alongside Intigent where it was really focused more on just activity and derived kind of information that we could uh, send to a number of different people. So, and when you, so when you get onto that, were was it was it ever the goal to say compete with the IHSs or Inveris of the world? Or I mean, because it, it, in a way it was, but then in, a, in other ways not. I mean, right, right, yeah. We we definitely wanted to uh, not directly compete with them. I think one thing that we tried to do early on in um, it was really trying to find the progressive companies that were oh we need an API, we need to integrate this into all of our systems. So we had a, a, what I thought was a very simple kind of well-header API that you know didn't require you to download an entire database. You could, it was RESTful. It was something that was you could get by well name, by you know API number, by operator, kind of all the basic things that you would expect from what what we thought a typical kind of oil and gas information company should provide. So we did that, and then uh, that led to probably even more kind of visualization tools, I would say, on um, you know integrating with Tableau, integrating with kind of Spotfire, Salesforce, kind of all down that path. And there's so many different workflows yeah. that you, can, yeah. you yeah. can kind of tap into. Um, and we ended up working really more with the you know, the drilling contractors, the logistics companies and, and those firms that were really interested in kind of how how they could get insights into what operators were doing. Sure. So that Energent was your first startup, really, that you're you were with Rig Data, I saw a little bit. Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of skipped over that yeah. for a bit. So I um, uh, I joined. Um, let's see. I left Chevron because I kind of had like an entrepreneurial bug in just trying to do something. So I had. Uh, when I left Chevron, started a couple little side projects kind of on the software side, joined Rig Data, and really the emphasis at Rig Data was relaunching a, a mobile app um, and building out kind of a, I'll say kind of a, a inter, enterprise data kind of product that they didn't have at the time. And so stayed there for a short period. I was hoping that it could actually um, when at one point kind of take over or, or buy the company from the existing owners okay. and that didn't work out. They were wanting to hold on to it, which I definitely understood. And that really spawned kind of energent and really forced me to make a decision of, okay, I can stay here and work and, and help kind of build out the product landscape or kind of start energent and, and, uh, go off on that. And, uh, so that's what I did. Sure. So like, so with energent then, so did y'all start? So again, I think, as I understood, like Boyd was probably more fingers on the keyboard mm -hmm. and then you were driving the kind of the direction of the product or. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I would say um, I was trying to create some of the, um, the reports and the kind of visualizations that we were doing. Right. So, you know, along the way uh, we decided to pick up R as okay. kind of a, a language for some analysis, some models and really more in probably in the way that I use it is really just a visualization tool, yeah. making it easy. And so we picked that up and ran with it and really improved kind of our, um, our ways of producing basically reproducible research, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, around oil and gas information, which at the time was probably, um, 
you know, R wasn't very well known, yeah. but it was kind of coming into yeah. coming into the scene. I think that's one one area where we helped kind of bring we'd bring analysts on, teach teach them R, or hopefully they even had some kind of R skills, <laughs> yeah. and then you know go to town on you know what we can do for you know completion metrics or you know propent kind of insights or anything around kind of the completion and production side. Yeah, so let's, I guess let's dig into that. So I mean, was was R kind of part of the Energent story like pretty pretty early on? Because I know I remember talking to you when you were at Westwood and you had mm-hmm. some people working on in the even had maybe an R library to help pull data out. But. Yes, yeah. So we ended up um, we probably I think there was a point in time when we talked about releasing kind of uh, open sourcing some of the tools that we built around because we had all kinds of R packages that were built specifically for the kind of well header information specifically for uh, some of the propent data, right. even getting into some of the more detailed completion side where we had kind of pressures and um, ISIPs and a few other kind of metrics around uh, kind of the completion data. And we didn't, but, you know, I think there's, I'm sure those still, yeah. you know, still exist, still being used. No, yeah. they were, like They're a great kind of foundation for us to, you know, take the research and actually do something more with, with the information. For sure. So, I mean, at that point, I mean, I guess we can, yeah, I, I didn't know where we were going to go with some of the technology, but like I love no, R. I, R was probably yeah, like, like, like my first like coding language, and I, I still mm-hmm. love using it when I get the chance. So at the time, was R Markdown a thing? It was just yeah, okay. R Markdown was a thing, and um, we tried to do some of the um, if you remember some of the PDFs, you know, and publish mm-hmm. it uh, with kind of Markdown. Some of that worked well, some of it was just okay, but um, we ended up taking all the ggplot and dplyr okay. and you know kind of yeah, all no, the tidyverse yeah. now right like, yes yeah all the packages and uh using those in a way that we could kind of run through oh here's the updated information here's um you know whether that's you know the, say taking some of the propent uh data that we had <laughs> and, and creating some of the you know kind of quarterly reports around that we could run through that pretty quickly and kept our you know the whole idea was okay we can we can do more with less sure. and with R in the reproducible side and then our own data, then we could, we could do a lot. Yeah. Walk, walk me through why y'all went with R over something else just out of curiosity. Mm. So, um, we started off with kind of a Ruby on rails application. One thing, one of the decisions that we made early on was, we want to do this with MongoDB and NoSQL instead of kind of a typical um, Postgres or Microsoft yeah, database or you know, something like that, right? And that decision was was a huge help in pushing us um, to be able to collect any type of information from any state regulatory body, from any um, you know EPA or even uh, even some of the frac focus information. Uh, we would basically collect through MongoDB first and then uh, kind of rationalize it, if you will, a little bit, and then pull that down into R for the analysis. Yeah. And, and and we started, I'm trying to think exactly where we started. We had a, um, uh, at the time we started doing a lot of um, kind of LinkedIn posts, articles, and having some key charts in there. One of the things that we found with R is we could kind of differentiate the chart make it look a little Mm. different kind of style it in a way that um was unique to us and so we continued doing that for marketing purposes and then pulled that into some of the research reports so were y'all just using it for just plotting or were you doing any kind of 
analysis and stats and stuff on the backside? On the backside, we did all the analysis and I would say some of the modeling. So we had kind of our quarterly forecast for drilling completions. We had part of that in R. We always wanted to move 100% into R, but there was just some things that were easy to do, you know, in Excel. Like if you want to tweak some of the, you know, growth factors or we, we believe, you know, the the rig activity or drilling activities didn't go down in a particular quarter or a particular area. It was just easier to tweak some of that in um, in Excel. But really the R gave us the, the uh, front end work of yeah. that to kind of really reduce how much effort we had to put into for it. sure so you so you can use r in production <laughs> yeah <laughs> proof yes yes. yes the other quick question i want to want to ask there because you mentioned something that i think all of us kind of generally understand but i want to make sure that for kind of just the the average user that they understand you're talking about your uh decision to go with a unstructured database versus a structured database mm -hmm. what what kind of went into that and why and like thinking about this from a generalist perspective of like okay i'm i know that i need a database because i'm in i'm gonna be doing some mm -hmm. analytics analysis whatever basic stuff with our data what do i need to think about and why do i need to be looking at unstructured versus structured yeah well interesting I know that's, a, that's a big question yeah but that's uh what, it, let, no, me re, kinda, let, let me rephrase it what benefits did y'all find from going with an unstructured database okay. versus a more traditional sql structured type database yeah since we were thinking um about a couple different products. We had uh, MongoDB on the back end so that we could pull in um, state regulatory information from any place. And so that would be everything from um, PDF documents to Excel spreadsheets to shape files going directly into uh, an unstructured database allowed us to say, okay, at this state level, we don't care how you define your right. individual record. We're going to take all of that information and whether that, you know, you know, if, you know, well names repeated and at least names repeated and, you know, you have kind of all this duplicate information, that's fine at, at one level. Um, we'll pull that all into that kind of state, we'll call it state repository on, on the MongoDB side. And then once we normalize it, then we can actually get to a, a structure um, you so, know, kind of our standard well header. Okay. So it's almost like a staging layer, if you will, or it, almost yeah. like what a data lake would be. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like our ETL layer, if you will. Um, we just use that. So we had um, some Ruby uh, programs that were all the gatherers that okay. were basically pulling pulling information, and and there were a couple things where we we connected directly to other other sources, but essentially pulling that in and then within MongoDB that allowed us to say, okay, if you wanted to then show that information through an application, we had, obviously we could, yeah. we could do that or we could show the normalized view. And so that, that allowed us to basically, um, not have to do in, in Ruby and rails, it's called uh, database migrations. Every time the database, the relational database changes. So that allowed us to kind of prevent that whole step and just go, directly to how we wanted to store the data and get access to it and then present it. And then from the R perspective, we could then use that normalized information or uh, what often happened is like, oh, I want to dig into North Dakota. Show sure. me, you know, show me what's happening in the, you know, in the Bakken or, or what's happening with some, some new mines or, you know, whatever it might be that we were able to then go deep into that, that state repository and have all that information at our fingertips. Yeah. So, 
Y'all started Interjet when? What year? So officially, I think it was 2013. Uh, did a little bit of consulting. I think we incorporated in 2013 or 2014. Okay. And then y'all exited when? In 2017. So, I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround for, in my opinion, yeah. Yeah. in oil yeah. and gas yeah. energy. Didn't feel software. that way. It, it, it did right. not yeah. feel like in that. The, I'm sure in the trenches, yeah. especially because well, oh, yeah. you got almost two downturn, or you got a downturn and a half. Almost, and a downturn right? and a half. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, I, I'll, I'll never forget, and Boyd and I always laugh about this, like, some of our first customers, me driving through kind of um, Eagleford and, and talking to people that were using the mobile app, because we had, we had that out in the field. And trying to figure out, okay, what what steps do you really want to take? And some of those were large companies, but you know had kind of their districts, and others were really small companies. And so it was always an interesting kind of you know get get a different view of yep. uh, of that once you uh, once you got into the field. So from like a infrastructure side, were y'all always on the cloud? Did you start off in the cloud? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we started off. Um, yeah, we started off with Heroku before they were acquired. Okay, yeah, yep. And then MongoDB was a, a an independent was that hosting MongoDB Atlas, like even, the one that they host. So or? even before that, there was something called um, oh shoot, I'm going to forget the name of it. Um, com, not Compose, but something that was acquired by IBM. Okay, and then we like the MongoDB portion of that became the most expensive okay. side of it, and so we uh, believe at one point transferred over to. Uh, this is probably in, uh, after we were acquired, but transferred over to somebody else, um, probably Mongo Atlas, yeah, um, to kind of reduce some of that cost. But that was years down the road, right? right. Yeah. yeah. Who were you so, host hosted on? Or which cloud? Well, was Heroku originally? Yeah, it Heroku. was Heroku. And Heroku got bought by Salesforce, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But then, I mean, that's a great platform. I mean, just from the being like, yeah, you can. There's even some really great stuff now. Even create an API Python mm-hmm. and just push it up, and it works. Like yes. And yeah. again, really abstracting those layers of complexity. Mm-hmm. You know, they they handle all the hosting and even some of the CI/CD for you if you want. Like, okay. yes, yeah. And so we would we would do things like <clears throat> um, we had a little special project or something with Heroku. You could spin up a say a Postgres database and then you know connect to that. Uh, we did some we did some other things with AWS and you know connecting with um, some of the once we got into production data, basically having kind of a direct connect to a public kind of production database on AWS, but primarily it was the core, I guess, was Heroku. Tell me, so y'all had your exit at Intergent. Mm-hmm. What are you working on now? Yeah, tell, so, tell me more. Uh, so let's see, the exit stayed at Westwood for what, four or five years, four years, I guess, yeah. and then um, left and I knew I wanted to kind of go back uh, and look at kind of some of the energy transition pieces. And so one of my uh, early projects at Chevron was a um, CO2 flood. Uh, it was kind of a, like water alternating gas. Wag. Uh, yep, wag. And so we had uh, we had a reservoir engineer that basically dealing with all of the CO2 buying and selling and trying to figure out how much water, how much CO2 they needed and figuring out kind of that life cycle logistics of that must be really fun. Yeah. And I'm (laughs) like, if you had one guess, how do you think that was being managed? Right. It was, it was at Excel and access data. I was going to say access, but yeah. 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 So both of them. And so I'm impressed uh, that you had any kind of database. That's very true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Excel is a database type. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So that was, uh, 
that was that was an interesting piece um, to me. And then obviously the um, some of the other projects that I've worked on, I was like, okay, there's got to be a little bit more on the on the CO2 side that's not very well known. And so started digging into um, some of the other information that I knew about in different states for enhanced oil recovery and and different CO2 floods and uh, started really doing more research around carbon capture. And so started decarbon fuse basically here, how can I provide some insights into the information around carbon capture, hydrogen and electrification? Because especially at Westwood did a lot with emissions and electrifications for different frack fleets and, and companies that were looking at, okay, how do we, how do we um, reduce emissions, clean, clean up operations, if you will. And so took those kind of three categories and really started digging into um, the market, like who the players projects and now trying to figure out if there's enough, um, enough kind of projects, enough spending to really warrant like a, full-blown kind of tool around um, around the screening of kind of carbon capture and, and hydrogen projects. So what kind of uh, data workflow use cases is, is your like target customer looking for, right? Yeah, so a lot of it right now is screening. Like all these projects that have been, been announced, most of them are in the screening and feasibility stage. And so with screening, it's mostly all public information, yeah. right? And you have all your emission data. You have some um, some well logs if you want to get into kind of the sequestration portion of it. Um, with the kind of the offering that I have right now, it's really here. Let me take a look at all the emission sources in an area. Where are the proposed pipelines? What does that look like? And then um, what type of scenarios can you build off of that? And so the so, i think the go ahead no so i'm an operator i mm -hmm. want to get into sequestration because i just announced this giant carbon capture plant in the mm -hmm. permian per se yep i can i'm trying to figure out how to logistically make that work once i capture the carbon that's mm -hmm. kind of essentially where you would come in as far as well at least on the front end right when you're right. planning and doing all the logistics okay and so is it is it just are people looking at I'm I'm fairly uneducated on this uh in the details, so I'm curious. Is it people looking at using existing pipeline infrastructure? Or are they trying to look at where they can build new pipeline infrastructure? What's the all of the above? I think it's gonna be pretty much all of the above. There's no I think uh let's see, tall grass in mm -hmm. kind of outside of the DJ, they're yeah. going to repurpose an existing one. Uh, there's a couple of conversations happening in the Permian about repurposing and connecting into some of the existing CO2 right. pipeline that's already there because there's, you know, yeah, no, there's thousands of miles already. Right? Uh, it makes so much sense in the Permian just because of the fact that they've been doing it there forever yes. and all the infrastructure is in place yes. on top of the fact that it's one of the most prolific fields. So now you mm -hmm. can increase your recoverable. On top. Mm -hmm. like, so I don't think people understand how like oil and gas companies basically get to double dip on this, right? We get penalized for the emissions, but then we get the tax credits for pulling the emissions out of the air. Mm -hmm. And then we also get the upside of taking our recoverable reserves from whatever, 20, 30% up to 40 to 50%. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, I think, I mean, it, it's a great idea in my perspective, if you can figure out the you know physical logistics, not just 
physically moving it around, but also the physics that go into capturing it and powering sure. it and all that stuff. Yep. But something that's come to mind for me, I mean, is it the same friction for like new pipelines if they're allocated towards CO2? That's a good question. Oh, yes. So, yes, no pipelines, okay. right? It's, yeah, pipelines. No pipelines, pipeline. period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't know if that was the thing because if you could say, well, this is for CO2, and then right. like five years online, like, you know what? This business isn't working for us, but you know now we got right. the takeaway now for we have natural gas, infrastructure you know, like, for anything yes. else. Yeah, infrastructure. So if you um, there's a company called uh, Summit Carbon Solutions. They're running pipeline. They want to run pipeline uh, through the Midwest all the way up to North Dakota, um, where they already have. I think they've already been permitted for the seek restoration well up there, but they're fighting all types of battles, counties, states, right and all that federal, stuff. everything uh, to get all the approval. I think they have 2200 miles of pipeline that they want to build wow. and it is you know it is a a web of um infrastructure connecting ethanol facilities all the way through you know back to the sequestration site yeah. so huge project yeah and will be awesome if it's they can get it all done but they have a they have an uphill battle from the community yeah, yeah. well i mean <clears throat> that's that's something to me that is just so underlooked in the energy space is like, oh, well, we need more refineries. Well, it's like, it's going to take five years to do a study to figure out where, where and how, and all the environmental, all the, you know, NIMBY effect and political stuff just to scope it out. Right. Right. And then it's yeah. like, and then it's going to take another five years once they do that, if they get the permits and approvals mm. and all that to build it. And it's going to cost a billion dollars. And so it's like yeah. people don't realize, you know, the, the time, and, uh, effort and scope that goes in and just yeah. like the amount of logistics, right? Like, Getting mm-hmm. local, state, and federal for twenty two hundred miles sounds like a complete yeah. nightmare to me. I'm yes. so glad I don't do that. Uh, completely, completely. And so we'll see if that happens. But you know, back to the Permian. There's this huge kind of wave of carbon capture projects that were announced around ethanol facilities, mm-hmm. mostly in the Midwest. So that's all kind of moving forward. I think the Permian and natural gas, either I'll say, kind of midstream companies in general are kind of this next wave and there's, they kind of sit in a perfect situation yeah. where they have a lot of gathering facilities. Some might be, um, have sizable emissions right. and being able to capture that and then produce, you know, cleaner natural gas or, or even just take the credit or, uh, even better utilize it and right. go create kind of a sustainable aviation fuel or something else. There's some, there's some paths there that, could be uh be really interesting yeah no i mean if you could figure out the power source piece on the carbon capture side the rest you know you could theoretically have zero in theory uh, i've mm-hmm. never done the math on this and i won't because it's above <laughs> my pay grade but uh you know you burn it you capture the co2 goes been into the pipeline goes back into the well that raises the reservoir pressure mm-hmm. ad- aids yeah. in recovery and it's just a closed loop mm-hmm. system right like there's potential that that could exist someday, which Perpetual is kind of wild. Machine. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Almost. Um, so to kind of maybe steer it back a little more towards like the data and tech yeah. side, of, like so uh, at Decarbon Fuse, so are you aggregating data from all different kind of, mm-hmm. you know, regulatory bodies? It's like a lot of public data yeah, and everything. So back to uh, some of the um, public information that's all the EPA emissions data essentially, which is you know, there's uh, a couple different sources within the APA. So we did a couple things and publicly you can, most of this is available just, um, on the site, right? So you can 
see all of the companies in energy and industrial in general in those sectors um, pulling in a lot of the say sustainability reports so what are their you know what are they doing from a scope one scope two scope three emissions and do they have any sustainability targets and then going one layer down on the facility so what type of facilities do they have and kind of rated some of those facilities based on oh this is uh you know this the air quality is good it's maybe high compared to others in the industry and then really then pulled in all the emissions data for the facility so that you can basically say okay I only care about um, natural gas facilities or uh, fertilizer plants or cement plants or whatever. And I want to see what's available for CO2 infrastructure, what's available for um, maybe other partners. So that's where the screening part comes in, especially <laughs> with companies that are looking at maybe they're only interested in Wyoming. Right. Right. So they can see kind of what that looks like and um, and basically provide kind of a single source for kind of all that information. Okay. So you just, are you just kind of aggregating all the time or are you doing it more project based for customers? And then like what, maybe what kind of tools are you yeah. using to get so, that? So surprise, um, still Ruby. Uh, so all yeah. Ruby on rails on the kind of the, the website, uh, the scripts are, there's a couple kind of Python scripts in there. I'm trying to get like a little bit of Python experience. Yeah. Like that's been a little bit of a headache, but uh, this time around um, I'm doing a little more of the kind of, I'll say development work myself okay. um, just to get familiar with some new information. And then um, we're taking, let's see, a handful of GIS tools okay. and kind of relearning some of the kind of map box functionality. So from the tool perspective, it is uh, Ruby scripts, a couple Python scripts, pulling down data from most of it's actually in shapefiles or CSVs, some kind of like tab delimited data. Yeah. And then um, aggregating that. And this time around, I'm using trying to leverage Mapbox a little more yeah, and and clean up the data and push it to Mapbox and then just visualize it on the front end. And so that's been a little bit easier to do um, versus uh, where Mapbox was, you know, when we started in Intergen. So that's kind of that process. And that goes, uh, we're basically doing that on a weekly basis. Okay. The most frequent. Some of that is on a monthly basis. And then there's some of the... Um, some of the EPA data is only updated once a year. So okay. I kind of have to balance that out a little bit. And like the GIS data, are you, are you landing that in like a Mongo or do you have like a QGIS? I was going to ask you what DB you're using. Yeah, on the, so this is where I've been uh, getting some help on the QGIS side. Okay. To, if you kind of normalize some of it, um, can do some real simple kind of um, aggregating there as well, right? Uh, before getting into getting into Mapbox. Um, and then what else on the i'm thinking more on the kind of the data and the integration piece so we're basically doing all of that locally now most of it locally there's some okay. that's being hosted uh kind of just aws s3 so mm -hmm. pulling it down i have the raw data available mm -hmm. keeping it as is and then processing it so kind of our etl layers a little bit local a little bit in the cloud yeah um, and then, uh, keeping kind of keeping all that together so I can move it into, move it into Mapbox, And then eventually we'll have some of the announced projects, um, 
so right now just focused on North America, but uh, the announced projects are then in a Postgres database, which is updated essentially on a uh, monitoring the news and announcements on a daily basis and then kind of confirm everything on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah. So can you speak to that? Because like, I'm assuming, I, mean, I know a lot of people in the energy space are very familiar with Esri, like ArcGIS. Can you speak about QGIS and the <laughs> benefits to it? Uh, only, I mean, I am a novice user sure. on, the, on the GIS side, but I think one thing that that I can do very quickly is pull in shape files, mm-hmm. do some editing, do some um, kind of rationalizing of the data. So especially thinking of, you know, the there's a lot of functionality. If you open up Esri as a first time user or even kind of, you know, intermediate, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you're probably going into um you know, specific functions or specific things you do kind of every time, or maybe use some of the workflow tools. Um, but with um, QGIS, basically I'm using it as here, a little bit of data quality side. And then I also have another who I'd consider more kind of intermediate to advanced person that I know once I'm getting into some of the shape files, some of the different formats, that then uh, can get some help on visualization within GIS, and I pass that off. Um, but for for me, as kind of a, I'll say even beginner user, it's a it's a simple way to kind of get access to the information you need and get it on a map. Right? Yeah, and it's open source, right? Open source, yeah, and, so and free and free. Yeah, you know, runs on the Mac, and like I'm good. So. Yeah, no, I think it's important <laughs> for people. So understand because like again you you just walk right into an operator your whole life and you just oh Esri but then you don't realize how much your company's paying for that license and right. even I think for us you know we have Esri but we've actually got a couple of people engineers and stuff that you know know how to use QGIS and they can pull it in and mm-hmm. do what they need to do and we don't have to pay for another license of Esri you know to do those simple kind of things yes oh exactly and um, like I still use some of the um, Esri map kind of web services um, so still plug into a couple of those but. You know, on a, I'd say on a, on a routine basis, it's all kind of uh, on QGIS. And have you all looked at or done anything with, had to, or needed to do anything with, say, the, is Postgres just kind of a serving layer? Because I, I know Postgres has PostGIS too, which is pretty powerful. Yeah, and I haven't used any of the PostGIS stuff yet. Um, I know um, for a couple of people have recommended for building out kind of the scenarios and heat maps and different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do some really kind of interesting things on the fly with um PostGIS, but I haven't done any of that right now. Kind of that visualization piece, I've I've pushed in the map box and sure. kind of recreated some of the analysis with new layers. Yeah, effectively. Yeah. Um, and I'm just being an R guy because you know we're here to nerd out on yeah. data. Have you used any of the GIS stuff within R, like the yep. SF and all that? Yes. And, yeah. Although I have a little bit of a hard time with um, some of the more complex maps. Sure. I mean, I should say. Anything over kind of three or four layers and in, in dealing with the scales sure. within um, within R, I feel like that breaks down a little bit. Yeah. But um, but overall, like there's some basic maps that I think that have been really good, like kind of who, who's doing what for primacy, for example. That was a kind of nice, easy one to create yeah. in R and, you know, simple there, um, being able to get points on the map. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, easy. As, a, as someone who's used Mapbox in a number of, places for a number of reasons i completely <laughs> agree with you there it's like there's so many especially with like the gis and arcgis uh just like hey there's this free thing over here or you know close to free close. if you're beta prototyping stuff where it's like hey you can go try this out mm-hmm. very easily copy and paste api key now you have a map box plot 
in your Power BI instance or mm -hmm. in your website that you can just embed, right? It's a very, I think there's, there's that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because there's all these tools out there that everyone yeah. uses that it's like, oh, I didn't know about that. And that's really nice, right? Mm -hmm. But what, uh, what kind of, let me back up. What, I want to talk a little bit more about your satellite yeah. experience because I think that's, Fascinating. Yeah. yeah this like satellite it's, it's data fascinating is fascinating by right? itself, I mean, hard stop. But yeah. then also the industry is starting to use it more and more for mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting things. I mean, there's a number of companies, Josh Adler's company, mm -hmm. they changed their name. It was Sourcewater. It was Sourcewater. And I'm sorry that I'm forgetting the the new name, but like that's built off of that, right? Like yep. a lot of yeah. their um, stuff. Like is, Kairos. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff. So talk a little bit more about that. Like how do you, what are the limitations of it? How do you see it really making an impact on the industry mm -hmm. now and moving kind of in the future? I think one of the, one thing that we saw that was incredible was the acceleration of the number of satellites that were covering the globe in between twenty call it twenty seventeen when we were acquired to you know, 2021 20, and even now, yeah. right? Yeah. The number of satellites is crazy. Yeah. Walk um, people through just taking a step back, like, okay, what, what do we mean by satellite data? How is like, what does that look like? Who are you getting it from? How mm -hmm. often? All of that kind of stuff. So there's a couple, uh, I'll say open source, um, satellite ready kind of analysis ready, um, imagery companies out there. And so you have kind of Landsat would be one that um, would be, you, you get certain coverage, I think on a month. So it's been a little while, yeah. but it's around a month um, type of view of probably um, 10 to 30 meter resolution. And this is where, so right when you start getting into the, the frequency and the resolution is what's so important. Right. And, and that's where the cost is. But, um, we ended up using, um, cause what, there's a couple different providers, right? right. Yeah. Who are they? Uh, so Sentinel is some of yeah. the, um, data that you can acquire that has several different layers to it. Right. So you could get the typical kind of RGB, which is, um, your visualization or what you would probably see in most applications, then they have some vegetation layers that kind of pre-built almost. And they also had some uh, layers that were pre-built around detecting moisture and water. Uh, so those. Yeah, now maybe, we've got Sentinel 5P, which is the methane one, right? And methane. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's coming. And I know there's a couple of companies that are trying to, yep. to use that as well. I think the, where we started was a concept of, can right. we see, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, that was we, very futuristic five uh, years ago, right? Yes, like that was yeah. like, can we see permits? It's like, can I detect pads before the permit is there? We yeah. knew, I, we knew for a fact there were companies that were developing and, and clearing the pads before, um, before any notification or regulatory report was out, right? Knew that for a fact. And we knew we could kind of try and identify those visually. It's like, okay, this would be that would be stellar. And then you start going down that kind of value chain and it's like, oh, well, if I can confirm the rig on site, right? If I can conf confirm the frack crew and, and looking at um, the frack activity. And then uh, even afterwards, can I tell 
when the frack you know, when the frack crew leaves and maybe there's flow back maybe you can tell something's happening um but uh, when it when it when will it actually get to production and so that kind of value stream or kind of chain of events i would say we tried to automate pieces of that and really be begin detecting kind of the permit side so this is this is a funny thing where I think there were a lot of companies talking about this at the same time and and doing different things, and you should look at some of the like. And Boyd and I sat down one day and started kind of making up stuff about well, like what what if we could t- detect kind of the the permit date beforehand and you know the the drilling dates and the rig dates and frac dates yeah. and everything else and started kind of putting a process to it, and so we set out. Of course, started with the Permian, and um, he was able to do some pretty good, I'll say, machine learning around um, detecting the imagery, processing the imagery, looking at certain areas, and uh, being able to see at least, okay, here's a pad, here's what it looks like, and then um, built a whole kind of processing slide to this that we would essentially download the images, only the ones that we needed, and then um, do some automated work up front, but then it became a manual effort. And we ended up using some of our analysts to basically detect detect kind of what the rig looks like, what the frat crew looks like, and so forth. Did you use them to train a model as you went? Yep. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's probably serving two purposes. Like yep. you're, yep. you're augmenting it, you know, it, you know, for your customers, but then also then you can take what they've kind of confirmed. And- right. And when we were able to kind of scale that from the Permian to Eagleford to Haynesville to uh, Bakken and I think the DJ and I don't think I'm trying to think if we ever got to um, Oklahoma and majority we covered majority of the shell basins. But one of the things that we saw early on was it wasn't frequent enough. Right. There was right. not enough imagery. And then all of a sudden kind of year in yeah. we moved from once per like 10 days right, to once daily. every two days, three days, and sometimes daily, which that was, that was huge. Yeah. Um, well, but then that comes with a cost, right? Like, so that's the, my next question for you is for mm-hmm. people that are looking at or interested in satellite data, kind mm-hmm. of talk about, you know, the, the knobs that you can turn from the different providers, right? Cause mm-hmm. if, my understanding is it boils down to basically resolution and frequency, yep. right? Exactly. So if you if you're looking for something like a pad being built that can be done in a short period or a rig moving on location or whatever, mm-hmm. you need much higher frequency data than, you know, if you're monitoring the completion of a refinery or something like that. It's gonna right. take years. Yes. Yeah. And so seeing the resolution, you know, there's obviously what's available publicly, which is um, what ten meter, and then goes all the way down to what i've seen i think is three centimeter uh resolution which you can basically see the (laughs) logo on the side of the truck yeah like it's wow amazing um also super expensive right and so we ended up uh talking to a handful of companies that were already like in that space i think what what we saw is a lot of the imagery providers wanted to become wanted to to deliver some of the analytics and wanted to be able to be the source for that but didn't really understand the nuances between, right. you know, a, well, that's actually a frat crew maybe, but it's just trucks parked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's staging ground. Like, so we, we had some, um, we were able to kind of combine some information that 
others weren't, or actually others weren't doing at the time. But just buying the satellite imagery, we went and got quotes from everyone to do the Permian, and it was ridiculous. You know, this is obviously it's the pricing has come down. Yeah. But at the time, it was you know several million just to do the Permian, and then you ever just consider geez. what's going to cost me to put a satellite in orbit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is, I think, what some some of the uh, you know <laughs> the companies are doing now. But yeah. it's like, wow, that's uh, yeah, that's taking it to another level. Yeah. Um, and um, so yeah, we saw the we saw the value in it. We could we could produce some insights from it. Uh, we could see kind of the the pad detection and some of that kind of work coming. Um, but really the, I would say the true value of, of what we were producing was then all the way down the value stream of saying, okay, here's a frack, frack crew. We can say, here's a frack crew that's consuming, call it, you know, what, 2,500 tons a month type of deal. And then forecast out what the activity, um, would be based on that frack crew. And then even further down the road, um, can you can you say that well is going to come online and be right. producing um, with with better, more granular information? Yeah. Kind of. Up front. I was trying to get university lands on that. On that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, you know, just like you're saying, from the people doing work on the land before mm-hmm. you know they're permitted to. I mean, mm-hmm. would, would have been a big deal. Oh so, yeah, so, yeah, and just also knowing, all right, because again. You know, you got the say the, inver- the rig data mm-hmm. stuff. You know, but the drilling does not mean production. That's, you know, you know, we've got ducks now for yeah. a year or two years. I mean, like, Permit, but when someone's fracking, you know, yeah. like I should expect, you know, uh, yeah. you know, money coming in the door mm-hmm. within you know a month or so. You know, like mm-hmm. give or take. So, yeah, I mean, even even back then, we were we wanted to be able to buy based on smaller <clears throat> kind of smaller areas, right? And I think there's, I know there's a startup now out, out of, I think out of Austin or maybe Denver, Albedo, that is doing smaller areas. And they're yeah. like, they're focused on the commercial kinda. side. And I think that's like, I think that could be right. a winner because Just serve me the data that I need. Also, yep. don't try and build the analytics on top of it because I have a very custom nuance app <laughs> use case or application yes. for it. Yeah. Yep. Just exactly. give me the data. Now that's, that's interesting. What will some of all your machine learning kind of comments from that into the next question which is what you know how do you see ml ai gpts uh of the world playing into the you know the energy space Mm -hmm. today and in the future like where do you see that being kind of the most impactful we can we can just pick we can pick gpt or insert your favorite ml kind of tool or platform just to narrow it down but yeah no uh i mean Everyone seems to be talking about GPT, so I'll start with that and then we can work backwards. But um, there's so many interesting little use cases that are probably being tested and piloted right now yeah. on um, and with uh, chat GPT that I think you could, if you can get back, if you can get by some of the privacy concerns, um, mm-hmm. I'll put that to the side, yeah. but just some of the use cases, um, like like being able to pull in um, drilling docs and answer questions around kind of the drilling process without having access to Wellview or without having yeah. access to whatever drilling tool you're using. I think that is a unique um, kind of uh, kind of deal. And then especially um, talk to a company this week that is really developed a lot of, I'll say kind of AI 
toolbox, if you will, uh, targeted oil and gas, maybe some healthcare, and they're just doing data discovery, right? Yeah. So where, what do right. I have? Right. What do I, you know, what do I need? And then can I monetize any yep. of that? You know, can I go sell yeah. some old kind of well information or logs or, you know, defits or do whatever? I, do right? I even have it? Yeah. 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 And so seeing that kind of that data discovery angle, um, I think there's been so much talk about kind of data as an asset within, within oil and gas, but it is, um, it's hard to do. And, and you have so many different source kind of projects and different kind of workflows that are needed. Um, but the AI side, I think if there's an, what I like about, um, chat GPT and open AI is basically the API component to it. Yeah. So if I can use your kind of intelligence, combine it with my own data, yeah. and I can keep the data on, on my, my little right. yeah. vector database or whatever type of database, then I think that could be fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you all have any kind of discovery? You have some kind of discoverability engine or something on your platform, yeah? A, a little bit, but not not something you could kind of plug into. Uh, right. Yeah, not, not yet plugging into scanning, I would say, kind of scanning. Um, uh, sources and, and crawling different things. But internally I could see somebody creating something and then pulling that into their own little database to then say, Oh, here, right. This is what I need. I don't want to pay for this data again. Um, or I want to sell some information. It's like, Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, like even just, I I say it's a basic use case. It's not a basic use case, but like discoverability, right? Like whether Mm -hmm. it's within a company of your own documents or on a, on Reddit or on a mess, like whatever, right? Like discoverability historically has been a very hard problem that, you know, all the social media companies have figured out ways to, to, I guess you could say solve, but Mm -hmm. their real intention is just you're keeping your time, not necessarily what you care about. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's a big thing, right? Like even with, when you're talking about, you know, the evolution of the internet, right? Like we went from forums and or chat to forums and now we, I mean, we're still using forums because Reddit is still huge, but even mm-hmm. in that, in that, like the discoverability part of it is such a key component, right? Because mm-hmm. you want to serve the person that is using it exactly what they want. But if it's not in the old way of having to tag, you know, put in tags or hashtags is basically the modern version of that now. Right. Mm-hmm. But being able to do that with AI in the future where it's just like, it just knows <laughs> it has, it knows everything that's in there. So right. it can find all of the missing pieces for you. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think someone saw someone talking about just how it's really going to disrupt like the elastic searches and some of those world too. If they mm-hmm. haven't bought into this, I mean like they're just, it's going right. to wipe them out. Like, I mean like, cause now you can just run these LLMs like mm-hmm. on, you know, internal things and it's going to be so much more powerful and better than, you know, what people were already using those mm-hmm. tools for. For sure. So. We've got like five more minutes. Just jump into the speed round we can expand on. Let's do one. What's one piece of advice you'd give people either mm. getting into the energy tech space or that ju- are, are new to it that are uh, new to it. Um, yeah. Don't do free pilots. You know, you say that, but I mean, I, I think it's also controversial. I mean, like there's plenty of people yeah. I think that, see the other way too so yes yeah uh, says yeah, exactly. says the guy yeah. says the guy at the operator i just want to point that out no no I mean, like, biased, I'm, I'm, I'm talking i'm like i know somebody on the software side that or on their side having decent luck with it but at the same time mm-hmm. definitely want to hear your thoughts on it yeah yeah so um i've just seen so many companies get stuck in this pilot mode yeah 
and if you don't have a way to monetize that, then you're you know, you're running your takes resources. Yeah, you're, you're running you're your burning your opportunity kind of into the ground. So yeah. yeah, and just burning that cash. Right. There's so many. Um, there's so many. I would say smart and unique things that you can do within um, within oil and gas, and especially oil field that will pay for solutions. So find that. Yeah. find that willingness to pay yeah. and, and then move move that direction so go go work for the smaller operator that's willing to pay for the pilot instead of going to work for the big uh noc or ioc yeah. that yeah that's going to take three years and lots mm-hmm. of time and hand holding yes because yeah, yeah those sales cycles are very slow that's mm-hmm. that's still Absolutely. one of the like yeah. biggest misconceptions of that i see software companies coming from outside of the industry into the industry like, well, if we can get Shell, we're a billion dollar company. It's like it's gonna take you three years and a long if you find time, the right person. Right. <laughs> if you get in, lots of gatekeeping, lots mm-hmm. of interviews, lots of hoop jumping, all of the insurance, all of the documentation, all of the yep. security, like or you could go talk to a smaller operator that doesn't have all that stuff that is also willing to potentially pay for it because they're not gonna be able to duplicate it themselves. Right. <laughs> Another big risk that you have, but all right, Bobby. Let's let's do the speed round. Yeah. So, um, what's uh, your favorite cloud that you've used? Favorite cloud? I think just some of the simplicity of AWS and S3. I, I still use it today. I've been using it forever. It's like it's just easy. Yeah. Um, I mean, S3 is probably the one of the best cloud offerings that there's yeah. been and it's to the test of time <laughs> yeah i probably have three accounts i'm still getting billed but it's like dollar yeah. 25 <laughs> oh yeah no month. i've got to, like, yeah. i don't even know what that is that could be something i don't even know but, yeah it's not some maintenance thing um yeah. let's go down what's your favorite managed service i mean you mentioned heroku previously there yeah probably i mean i've uh i've just been using heroku for so long i would say that's probably still the one um there's several coming out that I'm kind of watching kind of more on the, on the rail side. And then I still think there's this little gap with some of the, um, R and R studio yeah. stuff. That's kind of fascinating for kind of deploying, um, you know, deploying some dashboards and different things like that. Yeah, I just like don't know if they're shiny server or the, you know, like, yeah, some of that some but, hasn't been great, but yeah, that didn't work out so yeah. well, but I'm still kind of keeping an eye on that to see yeah. what else, what else the you guy, can do. I there. think Freddie Drennan, I don't know if you follow him on LinkedIn or not, but mm-hmm. I know he's got some like indexer thing where it's supposed to be really help like push your R projects up to the, the cloud. Whatever. The cloud. Yeah. Um, about security tool. Oh man. Um, security tool. This was written by someone who has never dealt with IT security in his entire life. So okay. I, you don't have to answer that because I just threw that on there yeah. because yeah. I was like, oh, maybe. I don't even, I don't even know. Like, um, yeah, I guess probably last, better, probably better void question. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Like, um, yeah I don't know. It would be like something like Auth0 that makes authentication easier. But, oh, yeah. Um, Let's do visualization tool then. Oh, yeah. I'd definitely go with R. And then I still go back to uh, some of the... I guess JavaScript JavaScript components like um, D3 yeah. to do some kind of unique things. Um, I think that's what, li- what libraries in R. ggplot. Uh, ggplot, doing a little more with SF for sure, and then now I'm gonna have to come at speed on the kind of the tidyverse piece of that yeah. as well. Oh, so, I mean ggplot's a pretty core component of yeah. tidyverse, but I mean one that if you're talking about the D3 and you've like ggplot is plotly. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, cause they have GG plot lace. So it was basically a wrapper. So you just wrap 
that around your ggplot code mm -hmm. and it makes it interactive. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I haven't used Plotly in a long, I remember seeing it when um, we would do some kind of visualizations, but I haven't, I haven't personally used it. In yeah, long. but I mean, if you're using any R, like, I mean, literally it's just simply just, you know, install the Plotly library, but then like they have the ggplotly call, you can just wrap your ggplot in ggplotly and it makes it interactive. Interactive. And it brings in all the same formatting and, yeah, the formatting piece is yeah, like it awesome. keeps it like your ggplot formatting, however you made it, but then it makes those pieces interactive and markable and all that kind of stuff. Cool. This is why I love coding because it's like, hey, you used to have to do all these really hard, monotonous, boring things, and yeah. another wrap. Now you yeah, just and Plotly is built on top of D three, so okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> awesome. Let's um, one more. Yeah, one more. Let's go. What's the most interesting like? emerging bleeding edge tech that you're excited about i'm trying to wrap my head around all the i mentioned a little bit all the new vector databases okay and that's just fascinating to me that like just in the last four months there's probably five or six new ones that are out there that um that so the kind of use case that i'm trying to look at is all right can i take um, any type of policy documents or, or research reports or anything like that, create embeddings within kind of the pinecone or try, uh, what is that other one? Chroma that I was kind of looking at. Um, and then you use that with open, a open AI API and create something. Okay, cool. So that's going to be like, that's fascinating to me right yeah. now and getting it to work has been, um, a little bit of a challenge. Like, but imagine that even like give it a year and people are going to make that so much easier right better like yes. easier yes but doing it now like where the while the barrier to entry is higher mm -hmm, right it provides more opportunity right so right and just seeing you know just trying to understand the technology side of it kind of my i don't know blows my mind a little bit on the whole like how it's turning it into vector and what that means and how yeah. the interpretation is happening and all that but no i mean i've got um, some homework so yeah <laughs> yeah I'll be Wikipediaing that after we're done. <laughs> it's the first time I've heard it. So I'm excited. That's, uh, yeah. No, I mean, at the end of the day, everything is basically built on or around some kind of database, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't feel like a lot of people the guy, respect that. Enough. The guy, no. I don't know, do you, any of y'all know the guy, Corey Quinn? He, he's a cloud economist. The guy, he's got some really good stuff on AWS. Like, he's pretty active on Twitter, but like, he just points out like, Oh, that's a database. That's a, you know, Route 53 is a yeah. database. Yeah. You know, the, this is everything, yes. you know, CloudFront is a database. Like, the, right. the internet is literally just a giant assortment of databases that have relationships to each other with yeah. a GUI on top of it. It's really <laughs> like, if you really yeah. distill a lot of it down. Well, even like, I mean, what we were at that UT blockchain thing and that one guy, Jimmy something there, like he was <laughs> like, it's a bleeping database with rules. Like, like yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> just turned inside out, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's just exposed to the public. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, every, every company should be a data business when it comes down to it. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, depending on your, your wells, your real time information coming from that side, you know, what you could do with it, what you want to do with it. Like there's so many opportunities right there. And Excel is not a database just for, <laughs> yeah, for just, the record. Just yeah. for clear. <laughs> yeah. Just for clarifying. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, no, Todd, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Talking to you, man. So. Really Thanks. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Thanks, man. Yeah, you bet. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Goodbye.